Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, I'm happy to have with me Thomas Blom Hansen, the Reliance Dhirubhai Ambani Professor of Anthropology and also currently Chair of the Anthropology Department at Stanford. He is the author of many books on Hindu nationalism, violence and urban life in South Asia. His most current book is The Law of Force, and this is what we will be discussing in today's episode. Thomas Blom Hansen, thank you for making time for us today. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Tell us a little bit more about this book that has already been released in India uh, and will be published in the United States sometime next year, I believe. Yeah, I, I hope so. Yes, it's <laughs> only out in an Indian edition. Uh, so, so the story is that I was actually contacted uh, by uh, this uh, publishing company called Aleph Books in India, which is a relatively new publishing house. And they have developed a profile, which I find very interesting, which is to try to have at least some of their books are kind of, you can call it a kind of crossover genre between academic work and, and sort of public facing books uh, uh, aimed at a broader audience um, and asking academics to, in a sense, explain themselves uh, as clearly as possible without too much jargon. And uh, so he, the, arc, uh, the, the, uh, the, author, the uh, editor asked me whether I, he had seen an essay of mine that came out some years ago. And he asked me whether I could write something uh, that, that was an essay about uh, that's actually called Democracy Against the Law, which is uh, about the relationship between the state and democracy in India and, and also the role of, of public violence. And so he asked me whether I would be interested in writing a book that sort of makes that argument in a larger form, but still a short, fairly sort of punchy book. So I, I took that challenge and I thought that was interesting. In the end, the book becomes almost like a form of summary retrospect of work I've been doing in India since the late 80s, early 90s, mm -hmm. where I began my early work, which is a study of the Hindu nationalist movement before they became really big and consequential. Um, so, so it came out in India and, and, and I, I, I'm now in, in conversation with Stanford University Press about a, a, an American edition. And the theme of the book is called, uh, in fact, the, sub, the next part of the title is The Law Force, The Violent Heart of Indian Politics. Mm -hmm. And it really is an argument about how the, the much celebrated uh, democracy of India has been uh, accompanied by uh, forms of very high levels of public violence and by public violence, I don't mean criminal violence necessarily. Uh, I mean public violence as in violence that's that's performative, that has to be performed in the public as protests, as uh, attempts to punish uh, a, 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 another community maybe, as um, a form of showing anger, uh, uh, whatever, uh, dissatisfaction. Um, 
and and so so this has been a constant uh, fact of uh, political and public life in South Asia throughout the 20th century. And uh, uh, in fact, you can say that in a certain way that the independence of India was, we often celebrate and think back the, the, the Indian constitution and the creation of, of the world's largest democracy. And there's a lot to be celebrated there, but actually that was uh, predated a few years by some of the largest uh, killings, civil killings, right? The partition violence that has been seen in the, in even, even by 20th century standards um, and massive displacement. So in some ways, the problematic of this kind of public violence of, you can call it civil violence where different communities either set upon each other or attack uh, other communities uh, or uh, confront the state has been a, a problem. And, um, so the book makes basically three arguments, I'd say, or three themes. One is I'm trying to show how uh, violence, in a sense, has become a very powerful language of Indian politics. And by that, I mean that a protest, that, that to stage a protest, to destroy public property, to show your anger, it is a way, it's part of the vocabulary of, of India. It wasn't always like that. 1950s and 60s had relatively fewer uh, of these kinds of incidents, but in the last 30, 40 years has really picked up. Mm. And I also use official statistics for whatever they're worth, although they're not very accurate to, to document some of this. So, so public violence is a way of expressing yourself. It's a part of in, Indian political language, if you like, Indian political performances. But it's not just about protest, it's also about punishment. It's also about um, attacking those other communities that might be your neighbors or your social inferiors. It can be, often it's uh, the, 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 the lower caste Hindus and uh, the Indian minorities, especially Muslims, have been at the receiving end of a lot of these, uh, a lot of this violence. Um, uh, but but then I also argue that that um, uh, that in fact when you look at violence as public violence as it is registered as we know it from police statistics and so on it also turns out that it's a this is a way of getting things done there's also almost like things that are not about communal riots where there's no attack on the other community or another caste community or whatever but it's actually a form of putting pressure on authorities and putting pressure on another community. It's almost like a transactional act, right? Um, and there's a lot of that. So I'm trying to draw attention to this, the scale of it, and try to, to argue that I, uh, in my, my key argument is that that idea, this idea that you can mobilize numbers and you can go out and you can make your case and you can show your anger or you can threaten with violence has become a kind of part of the common sense of how you do politics in India. And as much as we want to celebrate Indian democracy, we also have to reckon with and, and recognize that this has been the unfortunate companion of that, which at times, and certainly we see this in the last five, uh, seven years with the BJP government that has tried to, in a sense, almost use this threat constantly uh, threat of vigilante violence or whatever, anger being performed, this can have very detrimental effects on the political freedom of many people. So I think what we're seeing is that because this violence has been allowed to proliferate in so many ways, it is also allowed to eat at the heart of institutions, at the heart of the democratic ethos, at the heart of the, the uh, 
rule number one in any democracy, which is that you have to respect the your opponent to be there, to be in the same space, to say and and live and articulate himself, herself in a way that's different, maybe even not very pleasing to you. So that tolerance has been eaten away because I think this violence has been allowed to grow incrementally over the years. So that's kind of, and then the last chapter in the book is, is about another version of that, which I think a lot of people have paid attention to, to some extent, but I see it as an extension of this, which is this enormous emphasis in Indian political life and public life on sacrifice, self-sacrifice of, of public service, um, but also the willingness to risk your life, but also martyrdom and how death and disappearances and so on and so forth play a major role, become major sort of symbolic touchstones of mobilization and so on and so forth. So I, I'm trying to say that violence is at the heart of Indian democracy. And that's, of course, something not everybody will agree with. So I loved when you said that the uh, the editor asked you to, or is the, the the series is the editor or the publisher asking academics uh, to kind of speak to a broader audience to uh, I, I I I'm not quite sure how you framed it, but make their Explain work understandable. Them Explain themselves clearly. Explain themselves. I love that. That made me laugh because I'm sure not not all academics would uh, would be able or willing to rise to that challenge. <laughs> so what what you say crossover genre? Okay, I get that means it's uh, it's that it's not meant to be kind of siloed in the academy. Um, but nevertheless, not everybody necessarily has access to books about these topics. Who is this book for? Well, it's obviously for a, uh, a reading public in India, which is large. It's written in English, so it's also for an English reading uh, audience, which, of course, is not uh, a very large... Well, it's a growing segment of, of the Indian population. The Indian book market is actually expanding by leaps and bounds uh, every year. So it is a book for everybody who uh, is interested in public affairs and who is willing to... Uh, to read something that is, I mean, it's not completely non-academic because it has to be. And that's also what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to convert my academic knowledge into something that is uh, uh, that is more accessible. Um, so it's for, it's for those people. And that is actually a really big chunk of people. And, and uh, I have always been impressed when I've given talks in India, uh, not so much anymore because now, giving public talks in India is complicated because um, there is uh, mm-hmm. so much enmity right. and especially around some of the work I work on, so controversial that, uh, you know, but in the past, I, I've always been amazed and, and uh, uh, gratified by, by the interest also from the sort of educated public, you know, in, in, in these broader things. And, and the fact that, that uh, I've always made a point of having my books out simultaneously in, in, uh, in uh, India at affordable prices, and they've been selling well. So, you know, someone is reading them and I can gather from many students that I meet and academics and other people that, you know, these books, my books included, and people read widely. And I think that's a value, a, a, a something that Indian democracy has allowed to foster and to have thrive and I unfortunately think that think that some of that is in danger because there's an awful lot of self-censorship right. uh, at the moment yeah. uh, because people are afraid 
of offending this party or that party, especially offending the government. And, and so, so I think that the freedom of expression, um, although it's not formally curbed, but it's being somewhat shrunk by self-censorship and by fear of these you know, forces that are willing to use violence as threats to, to silence those they disagree with. So I think it's a, one of these, it's a real gem that India has produced over the year, many decades. This large, well-informed reading public that's not afraid, much less afraid of reading intellectual things than the general public in the US, which has a much more anti-intellectual bent. India is not an anti-intellectual place. It's a place that valorizes and values intellectual life. Mm. And that, I'm, I see that culture being in jeopardy. But that, those are the folks I write for. Right. I'm really glad that you mentioned affordability as well, because academic books are often unaffordable within the, the United States market. And if you then translate that into rupees, it's absurd. Uh, yeah. So it's really important uh, yeah. that, you know, for, yeah. for those who can put pressure on the publishers to do so. Thank you for yeah. pointing that out. Now, when we at the Center for South Asia, we showed the fantastic movie Armis, uh, directed right. by Bhaskar Azarika a few weeks ago as part of the Stanford Global Studies Film Festival. Uh, and after we showed them the film, uh, many audience members uh, questioned the main character's obsession with eating meat in mm -hmm. what they think of as a largely vegetarian culture. So similarly, I imagine that for many, many of your readers uh, within the United States, um, the existence of political violence in what is still very much seen as the birthplace of nonviolence is confusing. And I'm wondering how you accommodate that confusion or perhaps the question is, uh, what does Gandhi have to do with it? Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, Gandhi has something to do with it, but let me let me draw the analogy between meat and violence here um, mm -hmm. in the sense of vegetarianism. It's very interesting that, you know, uh, recent surveys have shown that meat consumption is increasing by leaps and bounds in India with oh. prosperity uh, because more and more people can afford it. And lots of reason, lots of the reason for the low meat consumption has also been poverty. Right. Um, so there are many communities, especially those who are not the upper uh, upper caste communities, which is is a smaller percentage, well well below twenty percent, maybe fifteen percent of the population. Um, but even in those populations, you have significant amount of meat eating, and you have meat, you have vegetarianism also in other caste groups. But vegetarianism is not as widespread; it's not as common. In fact, uh, uh, something like. 70 to 80% of Indians report in these surveys that they eat meat, if not every day, then certainly occasionally. Mm. Now, I think that has to do with the fact that, that the way in which India is has been projected and, uh, and understood across the world is very much a sort of upper caste idea of India. Right. Uh, and there we come to, to Gandhi because Gandhi was of course part of this. Now Gandhi himself uh, uh, was uh, a man who uh, of course em embraced um, nonviolence and he was seminal in developing these techniques of, of nonviolent resistance to colonialism that he, colonial powers that he developed while in South Africa and later in India. But at the same time, when you come to think of Gandhi's career, you see what he did the last 15, 20 years of his career. A lot of it was actually efforts at keeping the peace between especially Hindus and Muslims. So a lot of his fast 
public fast and so on were designed to stop violence. So he was keenly aware of the phenomenon that I talked about a while ago, mm -hmm. that this uh, possibility of, of public violence between communities, uh, also between caste groups uh, and, and across all kinds of, of, of fault lines was an ever-present possibility in India. So for him, the ethos of nonviolence was on one hand, a kind of uh, a way of combating um, uh, or fighting for Indian independence, but it was also a ethos of life. It was one of the ways to curb what he saw as the ever-present possibility, the ever-present potential of human beings becoming violent and impressing their, their will, will in other people by violent means. So for him, it was, and I think that's the part that got really globalized and got translated into, you know, the civil rights movement and the anti-apartheid movement and, and many other places. So all that is good and and admirable and all that. But any student of Indian society, of Indian history, will also know that after independence, Gandhi became elevated to be Bapu, right? The, the father of the nation, whose pictures in every classroom and so on. But on the streets and in everyday transaction, while the government and the Congress party projected him as and a nonviolent philosophy as an important uh, kind of almost a national treasure, that was not always the case, right? In the 70s, there were many big protests using nonviolent uh, uh, protests, especially uh, leading up to the emergency. Um, but after that time, less and less. And that's really where you see the beginning of a much more violent phase in, in Indian history. Um, and everybody, I think, I have met over many years in many different, uh, from many different backgrounds will say the same thing. They say, well, Gandhi was a, a great man in some ways, but you know, he didn't really understand the rough and tumble of politics. Because politics is, is, in, is, of course, a fight over who gets what, who pre prevails, and so on and so forth. So many of those who actually practice democratic politics as we've come to know it in, in India and practice it quite well, although, you know, by violent means at, uh, very often, um, they might pay homage to Gandhi while still going on with their, you know, shenanigans, right? And so I think that's that's true. You see virtually everybody, the BJP at some point in the 1980s, before they started to campaign to raise the Babri Masjid, they, they embraced Gandhian socialism in their program from, from 1982, 84, and so on. I don't know what they meant by that. Nobody really knew. Mm -hmm. But that's, I think, the significance of it. So it's more like a... Uh, legacy, a heritage, something you pay lip service to, but Gandhian philosophy doesn't have much traction on the ground. Right. Now, you argue in your work, as I understand it, that the narrative that um, government facilitated violence started with the BJP or with the Modi government is incorrect. Um, can you speak more to that, but also to where this narrative does have validity? Because society has changed. You yourself also admit that. Absolutely. Um, so when it's where it's not correct, I mean, I'm arguing 
in this new book and but also in other things I've done that as much as BJP has done many things um, in, and, and in some ways narrowed, as I said, the, the, the breadth of public expression and instilled fear in the minds of many people and trying to, as it were, curb opposition to their own project. Because, you know, let's not forget that the RSS and the Hindu nationalist movement is not a movement that believes in democracy. They never endorse the Indian constitution. They don't stand for these principles. Right. So that's point number one. Mm -hmm. This is not a democratic movement. Mm -hmm. So what, what, when they came into power, what they found ready-made was a very large security state that's been built up over many, many years by the Congress party and other uh, actors that has committed all kinds of atrocities in the Northeast, has been responsible for all the violence that you see in Kashmir, has been not willing to uh, pull back security forces or police, uh, not willing to, to institute police reform that would create a less violent policing in India. India has some of the most appalling statistics when it comes to custodial deaths, custodial torture, uh, death in, you know, all these things. So a lot of the sort of structural problems in India where there is violence that is also disproportionately directed against the minorities, against the lower caste, it was already there. But what the BJP did was to, in a sense, use some of that, some of that legislation, some of which had been passed by Indira Gandhi and so on, draconian security laws and so on, use it against their political enemies in a way that's more blatant, more brutal, more confrontational than we have seen. But they were still playing by a book that was already written. And that's what is important. So uh, I, I think in some ways that, that this, what's happening in India now also needs to be, a we need to take it as a moment to re-examine this sort of uh, narrative that until 2014 and Modi takes over, Indian democracy was going swimmingly, everything was fine, everybody enjoyed their rights and so on. Nothing could be further from the truth, right? Mm -hmm. There was lots of violence, there was a lot of unwillingness to curb attacks on minorities. There was lots, there was no willingness to undertake uh, reforms or, or crucial institutions. There was um, no, um, only limited will to protect the weaker sections such as Dalits and, and lower caste communities and so on. That has all become worse. So we have to be honest about this. And as much as I like to criticize the BJP and the Modi government and the RSS for many things, we also have to be precise and say, a lot of it is what they're doing is just carrying on a form of domination uh, on uh, uh, and a form of um, governance that that benefits the upper 10 15 percent and but that's not a new thing so this this um this what what still feels like a, a new wave of government mandated or government uh, condoned violence, which of course is not uh, only happening in India at all, feels right. kind of global at the moment. Do you feel that that violence is happening 
more because people can get away with it or do you think that people are more giving in to their tendencies to be violent now that it's possible with impunity that's a that's a nice way of putting it the question i think it's both so i think it's both um a question a sense of uh, impunity that much of the violence, think of all these sort of lynchings and things like that that's been going on. Now, a lot of that is done right under the nose of the local police departments. They right. know exactly what's going on. They most likely condone it. Nobody will, none of these guys ever get caught, right? Um, sometimes high-ranking elected officials are involved in it or behind it. Hard to prove because the police won't do any investigation. That's also the fundamental problem in India, that the police doesn't have significant investigative powers or even the impartiality that is the, pre the precondition for that. So impunity is there, and, and we see that at many levels. Um, but there is also a valorization of violence, and the RSS is fundamentally a, an organization devoted to violence. Let's not forget when it was started in 1925, it began as a uniformed paramilitary corps that was devoted to training Hindu men to defend themselves and their communities against what was seen as a Muslim menace, a Muslim threat. They dressed up in uniforms that were more or less copied from the colonial police, very interesting, a little detail. Uh, and they, they admired the British for their discipline and they admired the British for their physical strength, right? and their, their, their cultivation of, of sort of hyper-masculinity. So this is what the movement is all about. It's always been about that. You see when you have RSS events, whatever you see them standing in rows, you also see the sort of playing, using the stick. The violence is at the heart of what the RSS is about. Yeah. And not just violent acts, but also violent words, right? So if you... One of the things I found in my earlier work, when I was actually spending a lot of time reading uh, RSS published material, was that I had sort of initially expected that there would be a lot of uh, praising of, of the virtues of Bharat and uh, the cultural greatness of India. And, and there was some of that, but mostly they were talking about the Muslim menace. 80% right. of all the articles in the RSS magazine, the organizer, is only about the Muslim menace. So certainly when I looked at it, I stopped reading that publication because for my own sanity. Right. But, you know, um, and that way, it's very similar to what you were taught, what you referred to here, that other, something that also you can see in other parts of the world, like you can see the militant uh, racist right in the US, which is also obsessed with enemies of all kinds, hidden right. enemies, open enemies, whatever. So you can ask yourself, so you can say, yes, it's impunity, we can get away with it, but it's also positively valorized. It's taken as this is how you, uh, uh, how you make a name for yourself in that movement. That's how you prove yourself that you many, I have followed because of my three decades of work in the same state, same part of India, I have seen Many people I met in the 19, late 1980s, 90s as these young street fighters who were making a name for themselves as such, as able organizers, street fighters who were physically brave, physically daring. Now they are MLAs and whatnot and business people and all that, right? So it's a 
in some ways, it's become a career path, certainly within that movement, but also in other in other ways. Mm. Um, so you can say that they, they're playing to a, 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 the same thing that Gandhi recognized, that this kind of the use of violence to, f- to project yourself, to suppress or to fight your enemies, the pleasure of fighting your enemy is, is, is great. You feel very self-righteous, you feel strong, you feel there's a lot of uh, uh, validation in that. And that's what they produce. That's what they sell to these young men. Come and join us. You, know, you can feel strong. You have nothing. You have no job, no prospect. But we'll allow you to beat up some Muslims and feel good about it. And that was also the logic of the Ku Klux Klan back in the day, right? Poor white men who were invited in to become great just by being white. So there's some similar things going on here. The Nazis did the same thing, recruited young working class men to, you know, beat up the enemy and and feel superior because of it. So so that's a pretty universal thing. Uh, So that thing exists. It exists. It's a fact of of life. And many, many people have documented in many different societies democratic institutions, democratic, um, a democratic ethos is a constant battle to contain that one, to convert that into something productive. And it doesn't stop. It's just because you do it in one generation doesn't mean that it doesn't come back in the generation after. Right. Yeah, I think the universe, universality of it was what I was getting at. Yeah. Um, now, <laughs> you uh, recently chaired the opening panel of the Dismantling Global Hindutva Conference, which was co-sponsored by over 70 units across the United States and beyond, uh, including the Center for South Asia at Stanford. Anyone who's been anywhere near Twitter knows how much vitriol this conference attracted, and the conference and indeed its critics were featured in a variety of global media. Why do you think this particular conference attracted so much attention? Well, uh, I, I I think it's you know it, it it has to do partly with the timing, um, uh, and uh, this is a, a moment I think where um, honestly things are not going really well for the BJP or the RSS in India, right? Right. They have not exactly excelled in fighting, showing their ability to fight COVID or to get, you know, all that the RSS says it wants to do to organize India, to make it more disciplined, organized, focused, manly, upstanding, and all that. Where is all that? Where is all that? Mm-hmm. There's nowhere. And people can see it. People can see it that they, and uh, I think that there, there is a sense of, I think there's a mounting sense of panic. It's also being reinforced by some recent election losses. And now that's what BJP is all about, winning these elections by whipping up sentiments. So I think there is a sense of of the narrative is slipping somewhat. The economy is in terrible shape. They've not been able to restart the economy. So they're looking for all kinds of things. Uh, One, there's been concerted attacks in the past year on all these so-called urban nuptials that is public intellectuals who speak out or who are critics of the caste system or critics of the BJP or critics of injustice of which there is many kinds in India, as we know. Um, There's been a concerted attack on uh, academic institutions, Mm -hmm. attempts to put new people in management to curb the freedom of expression within those institutions to 
curb the freedom of, of students to speak out. There's been these very violent uh, uh, pushback against some of the protests we saw in the winter against uh, the, uh, um, the, the, the Citizenship Act amendment, uh, which, uh, and some of that happened on, on, on university campuses. So there's really been, ever since they won re-election in 2019, there's been a ramping up of a certain kind of strongly anti-intellectual and anti-academic right. um, narrative where these, uh, you know, over-educated liberal people on these campuses are, are, are entitled and they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what the, we represent the real India. They represent this overly westernized whatever. So this has been building up. Yeah. And I think this conference, because it was so well publicized, it was all over. It really had a, a lot of got a lot of attention in general. Then it was picked up and and um, and used as a way of showing that you know these academics, who many of whom will be critics of the BJP, and they're in the U.S. and elsewhere, we can't do anything about them. We can decry, we can portray them as enemies of, of Hinduism. So that feeds this sort of persistent narrative that you have that the the Hindutva project runs on this sort of con constant production of enemies, the Muslims, the minorities, the, the vile um, intellectuals in the US or elsewhere who are only there to, to, uh, to undermine uh, us and undermine Hinduism. And I have been, as I said in, in there was a con congressional briefing that was set up to, to actually uh, 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 give a sort of picture to uh, uh, staffers and, and, and people in Congress about what, what's going on around mm -hmm. this conference and what's been going on for a long time. That as long as I remember, but certainly the last 20 years, I've been subjected to constant barrage of criticism being called anti-Hindu, anti-Indian, racist, colonialist, whatever. My Indian colleagues who have the same point of view as me, they are called... them much worse names. I mean, they're traitors to the nation. They are threatened in all kinds of ways, especially the women and so on. Yeah. So I think it has, so this conference is, a, it fits into that larger sort of push to produce and project this kind of enemy, this elite. It's typical also part of a certain populist tactic to show that all these entitled overeducated PhD holders, they are out of touch, they know nothing. Uh, we know the truth of what it is, um, but it's also a way of asserting um, that you know that you you can't um, that to, to in a sense assert that they represent the true feelings of Hindus across the world, right? Yeah. Which of course is inaccurate. But by saying it again and again and again, they seem to you know produce this effect that that people say, oh, but at least they stand up for us Hindus, whatever. So I think it's. It was directed at us, but it was actually, when you think of all the shouting heads on Republic TV and, and elsewhere in India, the Indian media, they, they actually invited me to be on Times Now to be interviewed around this. Uh -huh. But I, I said I was busy because I had to chair the panel. Uh, it was at the same time. Right. Um, you know, who are they speaking to? They are speaking to an audience that that uh, uh, they think will be receptive to this idea of Hinduism, Hindu culture, Hindu ways of life that many people, of course, are 
attached to are being denigrated and criticized by by the likes of me and all these other people in the conference. Yeah. And, and that serves their purpose. So, so um, I think that's what it is. It was the high profile, but also because they are in some ways, I mean, I was su surprised myself how rattled they got, you know, if they were winning battle, political battle after political battle and making strides towards creating the perfect Hindu Rashtra, I don't think they would have time to bother with a conference like that. Right. But because they're not. Right. Interesting. Um, yes, there was definitely, um, there was so much energy put into a, a detraction, as you say, that, that that really reified the conference in, in ways that perhaps they didn't even uh, uh, had envisioned. Like it was, everybody, everybody was talking about it, but not necessarily in ways that the detractors wanted, I imagine. Yeah, and if I may add, I think it also, there was also a way in which they mobilized um, uh, Hindus living in America, Many of whom are, I mean, as we know, the Indian community in America is, compared to many other immigrant groups, really, really successful, uh, really upwardly mobile, um, not marginal in any uh, sense of the word. But I think they were playing through this, like the Hindu American Foundation and others, um, are playing to this uh, sentiment that people have, they come, they are many come with good education, they have great jobs in Silicon Valley and in the financial sector and everywhere, but still feel somewhat alienated from America as one does and one is made to often when, when one is a person of color, right? Uh, with a slightly different accent perhaps and certainly a different set of, of, of uh, cultural practices at home and so on and so forth. Yeah. So that slight sense of alienation, yeah. maybe a sense of being part of America, but not quite, yeah. Could we mobilize to say, ah, this is because these people are anti-Hindu. They, they despise your religion. Although there is no evidence that Hindus suffer significant discrimination in, Indian, in American society, that people cannot build a temple or cannot get a job or whatever. So as a group, there is no evidence of persecution. But there, I think as in many recent immigrant groups, there is a sentiment. And of course, yeah. it's, it's also about race. It's about America being a predominantly white country still and, and so on. Uh, so I think that was also mobilized into this sort of, um, you know, and they were, the Hindu American Foundation and other organizations actually issued kind of templates on their website for people to fill out, to send to institutions all over the US complaining about, you know, why is your institution supported a, supporting a Hindu phobic uh, whatever. Yeah. So hundreds, thousands, thousands and thousands and thousands of letters were received and university managers are prone to be a little nervous if you get too many letters about something because you have your reputation and your endowment and other things to worry about, right? right? Yeah. Uh, and and um, uh, so that's what they were playing for. They were playing for that. So I think it was, um, it was portrayed as if it was just kind of spontaneous outrage, but it wasn't. It was a very well-concerted And I think the volumes also showed, I mean, if the templates on the website and also a, a, a university chancellor gets 10,000 emails in a day, you've kind of given the game away, right? So from that point, yeah. I think less is more. And especially if this, the emails read exactly the same uh -huh. or the letters read exactly the same, it's like, yeah, you know, it's good to 
pretend to be an army, but if you look too much like an army, it's not really working, right? Right. So, right. yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that was interesting. I was very happy that the conference proceeded, mm -hmm. that there were thousands and thousands of people who attended, mm -hmm. that the videos for the conference are now circulating wide and uh, on YouTube and generate their own kind of vitriol and hate mail and reactions. But it, it actually gave that conference much more of exposure. Uh, and I'm happy with that for two, re two reasons. One is that anyone has a right to put on a conference um, in this country uh, and get the support of relevant academic units. Two, if anyone had given in to this, that would have just opened the gates for endless harassment. We are in absolute solidarity with all our colleagues uh, in South Asia, as well as in the United States, who are being harassed uh, in terrible ways on a daily basis. Um, yeah. Thomas Blom Hansen, thank you so much for making time for us today. This was a really fantastic conversation. I'm, uh, I'm really pleased to have had you on the SASPOD. Thank you very much for having me and thanks for all the work you're doing. I also want to thank Soim Shiva for creating the intro and outro music and Simrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for joining us and I hope you can tune in again soon. Thank